another episode of the Digiday Podcast. I am your host, Kamiko McCoy, Senior Marketing Reporter here at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, Media Editor at Digiday. Kaylee, I know we normally start on a fun note, but this week, the start to 2024 has been a very hellish experience for all of those of us in media. We've had layoffs at everywhere from the Los Angeles Times um, to to Business Insider, I think just a couple days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 been a really, really tough time. Um, and I and I want to make sure that we acknowledge that. But um with everything that's going on, you had a really interesting opportunity and the the timing here is really interesting to talk to Condi Nass, which is also seeing some of those effects stateside they are, um, but across the pond. You talked to Adam Badawi, um, British GQ's head of editorial content and deputy editorial director for, for GQ globally. So talk to me a little bit about kind of what you guys' conversation was. Yeah. So obviously with everything going on stateside at Condé Nast, like that is, you know, very much top of mind. There's, you know, strikes and uh, walkouts going on and, um, and negotiations going on. Um, Adam and I did not get into that conversation considering he is British GQ, so he's a little but too removed to speak on it. Um, so what we focused on in our conversation was really looking at his role at GQ. And, and basically, a couple years ago, Condé Nast decided to do this very international shift in operations. So and Adam gives a really great example of what it looked like pre this change. Basically, it's like each of the imprints of a magazine, so whether it's like British GQ or um, you know GQ Middle East or um, GQ in America, there was the opportunity that like they were going to overlap in covering the same story three different times, and it was largely because there was no communication. So he gives a really great example later in the episode about um, featuring the same person on a cover like three different times basically regurgitating the same story. Um, and he's like, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. It's a waste of that like individual's uh, willingness to work with the brand, right? So he came into this role at British GQ uh, at late, like late 2021. And at that point, it was really clear that the way that online audiences were convening was very different than it had been even a couple of years prior because of the pandemic. There was a lot more activity on creating communities on platforms like TikTok or like YouTube and things like that to stay connected even remotely. And so there needed to be this shift in the way that community and men's lifestyle content was really being talked about because it looked a lot different than it had, you know, even a few years prior. It wasn't so much about like, this is the ideal man you should strive to be, but it was like, masculinity looks so different. There are so many different ways to express your individuality and, you know, what you define as luxury. The brands were changing. Like there was such a shift in that kind of idea of masculinity that it it really meant that a brand like GQ, which Adam talks about having grown up loving his entire life, needed to change to be fitting with the times. So we get into the, not just like the story of how that happened, but also what that's really transitioned to in terms of different franchises, events that they have, and then really just handling social media as a platform, as a distribution strategy in a time where like the algorithms are not friendly to referral traffic anymore. Yeah. So that's, that's what we really get into. It's honestly, it's quite, it's quite a long conversation, but it was such a fascinating one to hear about how he kind of steered the brand through this transition. And 
he also like I don't know just seems to have a very fascinating life so it was just a fun conversation to to have in general but yeah so that's that's what we get into um Condé Nast yes but British so a, a little separate from from what's going on on our side of the the pond absolutely well with no further ado sounds like a juicy scoop I'll let you guys get into it thank you Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I love DigiDay. I'm very, very happy to be here. That is so nice to hear. Um, I'm excited to have you on. I feel like there's a lot I want to get into. It's always great talking to someone on the editorial side of a media company because we can have these really fun conversations about, you know, big projects, franchises, events, thinking about more of the the creative side of the mix. Um, So I'm excited to have you on. But I was thinking back to some of the last conversations I had with, you know, Condé Nast brands uh, a couple years ago. And there was really this kind of strategy at the time of globalizing brands, making sure that there was a lot of um, like cross collaboration with the imprints in other countries, um, you know, making sure that there was a really kind of cohesive approach to how a media brand, especially a legacy media brand in the, you know, I guess 2024 now, but back then it was maybe like 2022, is operating. And so I know you are not only the head of editorial content for British GQ, but you're also the deputy editorial director for GQ globally. So I'm really excited to hear about how this globalized process has really taken off and how it how it looks today because I think it's something interesting to touch back in on but before we get into all that I guess first question because I just am rambling at you um I would love to hear about you know your vision for British GQ you started about two and a half years ago or so but curious how you kind of entered the brand and what you felt at the time needed to change about a, such a legacy storied brand in a very digital modern time period. Yeah. Um, that was a hell of an intro and I loved it. Can't wait to get into all of that. Um, first and foremost, I grew up on British GQ. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne, Australia. And um, from the age of like 14, 15, I spent a fortune of my pocket money on imported editions of GQ from around the world, uh, Esquire too. But I just, I loved all these magazines and British GQ was one of my absolute favorites. Um, I would say that I knew almost too much about the product. I knew the masthead inside and out. I knew the photographers that would cycle through for covers. I knew how to spot like an Ed Caesar reported feature or a big Alex Bilmer's cover story. I loved the product. Um, Actually, when I was like 21, 22, I, I DM'd the the editor at the time on on Twitter, and I was like, "If I fly myself over from Australia and like crash on a friend's couch, can I do work experience for you?" And very kindly, he said yes, and I did that. So I was obsessed. Um, but in like the months immediately preceding my global appointment and my British GQ appointment, I was the editor in chief of GQ in the Middle East, and then this great big global transformation moment happened at Condé Nast, like you alluded to. Um, And as part of that, I was offered this role. And I mean, I was almost in two minds. It was so intimidating to me to have grown up obsessing over this product and then to be given the responsibility of leading it into a new era was a really big deal on a personal level. And on a professional level, it's like, crap, that is like a really, really 
really big task. Um, so we sat down. We looked at everything from where the audience was coming from, what they were reading, how print was performing, the format of our different suite of products across the board from events to print to the website to social to video. And we kind of built out a vision to completely overhaul one of Britain's most iconic media brands. Um, and thankfully, we then had the courage to go out and do it. Um, I think I was raised in an era of men's magazines that in general were very prescriptive, um, kind of that traditional era of luxury and traditional era of men's magazines. It was kind of like, and it's not just GQ globally, it was a bunch of them. It was like, you should earn this much, you should sleep with a person that looks like this, you should be this tall, you should wear that suit and speak like this, yada, yada, yada. It was pretty much like, here is the mold of the ideal man and do your very best to contort yourself until you fit into it because this is how to be a man. And there were lists and there were rules and it worked really, really well. It was a very successful era of men's publishing. And when I landed in London, um, it was clear, like it had been for a few years, that masculinity had shifted. Uh, if you went to the fashion shows and looked at the front rows and the catwalks and the campaigns, it was clear that luxury had shifted. And it was clear that we're in a much more democratic era of masculinity, a much more democratic era of luxury. And all of a sudden, opulence was like a state of mind instead of an ideal to be achieved through like a very rigid set of instructions. The other thing that was on my mind is we're rebooting British GQ is that it's very clear that duh, there is no homogenous male consumer. And for a very long time, magazines could get away with being like, yeah, we're the magazine for men, duh. And um, while it's of course incredibly fair to say that other demographics have been really underserved or spoken down to by publications. I think it's also very fair to say that men have been marketed to in a really unimaginative and brutish way for a long time. And that we were well past the era of like one size fits all for men. Um, our strategy, our hypothesis is that we would succeed if we made GQ more personal, more communal and more specific. And that's what we set out to do. And we anchored it on this um, motto or this tagline of new luxury, new British luxury. And um, the past few years have been an exploration of everything that that means. Now I'm rambling, but <laughs> fire away based on that. Yeah, well, it's, first of all, it's it sounds like this is kind of your dream job that you've really manifested by, I mean, putting yourself out there to just even get work experience for a previous editor at, you know, GQ. Like that's, that's really awesome. Um, I mean, but- I was I was like an obsessive freak about JQ, to be clear. <laughs> like, I think I successfully geeked my way into this. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't cool. But, you know, we got there. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like taking a risk and having it pay off so positively to the point where you're at now. Like, so I guess, was your career entirely spent within GQ, like, be it like GQ Middle East, GQ, Brit, like British GQ, yeah. or have you had like interludes elsewhere? GQ has been one of the most stable relationships in my, in my adult life, besides my beautiful partner, um, who's also very important. Um, but no, I like I said, I, I grew up reading GQ. I think my sister's brought home this really cool 
JQCAF with Pharrell on it when I was younger. I'm like, oh, what's this? It's like a portal into a whole world. And um, I, I was out of school when I was working as a young freelance writer and I would relentlessly be pitching Australian GQ. I think it took me like 18 months, two years to get my first little story in Australian GQ. I became a very regular contributor there. Like I said, I came over to the UK, I did some work experience here at British GQ and then at British Esquire, then went back and did more work with Australian GQ. I had a stopover with the New York Times as an Australia correspondent for a year. And then I, uh, an Iraqi that grew up in Australia, saw that Condé Nast were launching GQ into the Middle East through a licensing partner. I applied to be editor-in-chief and that's how like this phase of my career started. Yeah, so what you were saying about like, the kind of legacy or like traditional approach to men's media, men's like fashion, luxury, um, magazines in general, like it, 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 and I think this is a very similar thing for like women's um, magazine media as well. Very kind of cookie cutter, you know, this is how you become the face of luxury or the face of, you know, fashion. And, and I think I said cookie cutter already, but that kind of like idea, right? So this, new luxury kind of tagline, the one that you have been working on the past couple of years. I'm curious at what point you recognize that needed to happen or that shift needed to occur. If it was something that kind of was brought up in like, you know, larger meetings, or if it was something that you've noticed kind of through audience relations or just noticing like, you know, social media, the discourse going around on, um, you know, luxury brands and how, you know, even TikTok has transformed the way people think about like trends and culture and things like that. Like what has kind of fed into that new luxury mentality and, and where that has led you to to grow the brands? Mm. It's really, really interesting. Um, obviously, like there was like bubbling and brewing in culture and in society for years before. Um there was Me Too, which is like a great reckoning of what masculinity is and how it exists in modern society. Um, there's Black Lives Matter. And there was this wave of different kinds of faces and perspectives that were newly being platformed. Um, and then coming back to London 10 years after I first lived here, the really interesting thing about London is it's like, and the UK more broadly, is that it's equal parts tradition and rebellion it's like it's conservative and it's punk it's it's the strangest mm. combination of things that i've not felt anywhere else but here um and you could kind of feel you know when i landed it was just after you know my girlfriend and i were relocated just after the borders reopened this is mid 2021 and there was just something there was something in the air and kind of Rebellion was winning the day. And what's really cool is that this great new set of characters, photographers, stylists, designers, actors, musicians had through sheer will um, and a lot of sacrifice and a lot of talent found themselves in spaces that they might not have been 10 years ago. And they were wearing clothes and jewelry and watches in a different way and they were bringing a different feeling to the kind of rooms we were in. And one, one of the cornerstones, I think, of new luxury is this feeling of community. Instead of like 
congregating around this this rigid set of rules of like, yeah, to, to fit in here, to be at this fashion show, to be at this party, you have to be like this and talk like this. You have to know that person, otherwise go get fucked. No, it was kind of like, we're congregating here because we kind of all believe in this rough vibe, right? We have this similar set of values. Um, maybe I'm not doing the best job putting it into words, but it was genuinely a feeling in the air. Um, and if you look at some of the private spaces in the UK and who they belong to as well, it was like, you know, members clubs are more successful in the UK than they are almost anywhere else in the world. Maybe it's more successful here than anywhere in the world. But um, I just think an era of exclusivity was being replaced by an era of community. And right down to the way you might present yourself, to everything had just changed. There was, mm-hmm. there was more openness and we're like, oh, we should be the home of that. I can't say it was derived out of any kind of audience insider market research. It was a vibe-based tagline, but something that served us really well. Yeah. And I think I think you're right. Like the period of isolation that was caused during the, you know, initial lockdowns, I think had a lot of people turning towards alternative means of creating community. So you saw like, you know, TikTok really blowing up. You saw like these um more online kind of connections being formed. Like you had to find ways to convene and I think because we also weren't interacting in person, there was more opportunity to kind of rethink about what does individuality kind of look like when you're isolated in your own kind of space. And so I think you're right, like that vibe, that tonal shift, looking for ways to connect while still being kind of on your own in a lot of ways can have a interesting cultural impact too. Um, But given what you were saying about, you know, being a fan of GQ and, you know, like how it had existed pre- this shift, did you struggle in any way with allowing a legacy brand to transform in that way? Like, did was there like a personal kind of um, hold onto the old media or like how, how did you kind of reconcile that as like a fan versus as someone who's trying to make this brand regenerated? I don't know what the word I'm thinking of. Refreshed, renewed, rebooted. Ref- yeah. Any anyone you please. That's such yeah. a good question. Because in like my weakest, more anxious self, like that was a very real risk when I took on this role. And um one of the things I often think about is the fact that we are very, very good storytellers. Not just at GQ, but at Condé Nast. It's part of the reason why I fell in love with these titles living on the other side of the world. And I think we are such good storytellers that we are sometimes, in my opinion, at risk of over-romanticizing where our brands have been. And we're always at risk of falling in love with a previous paradigm of success. Um, And that's a very, very dangerous thing in any business, but particularly in an industry like media. Um, So once I had my head screwed on, I I was just like, we cannot be precious. The biggest risk of all is to to rest on our laurels. I mean, how many how many brands stubbornly held on to who they have been historically and became slowly irrelevant or clutched desperately at revenue streams that were gradually going down? So I made a decision that I'd I'd much rather push things too far, change too much than not enough. And um, one thing I always say to my team is like, 
we have to remind ourselves that we we aren't owed anything from our consumers. We have to earn and re-earn attention and loyalty on a daily, if not like hourly basis across all of our platforms. And I see like when I think about my younger self, I, I'm laser focused on building the kind of GQ that won't just survive, but can actively grow and dominate in this moment and in the future, even if it doesn't resemble the kind of business we were before. Like, I refuse to fall for that trap. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I think that is a really valuable point in something that you're right. A lot of media brands, be them like, legacy print titles or even, you know, the brands that came up during the digital revolution that have lost a degree of ground, even in the past few years with all of the like algorithm shifts and things like that, like you have to be very versatile and you have to be willing to make changes to stay relevant, especially with consistently, it seems like the online audience has gotten younger and younger. So like the way that audiences consume media too. It's just like, there's so many things you have to stay on top of. I'm curious, like understanding that you're on the editorial side, you're not really like looking at, you know, the advertising piece of it, but I am curious about the brands that you work with from a editorial perspective, whether it's like fashion brands or like legacy kind of luxury and, and looking at like even like celebrity to a degree. I'm, I'm curious how your partner's in coverage or in like editorial output have handled this shift in mentality as well. And I I guess I'm curious about like these very historic fashion houses, right? Who have a very maybe like traditional approach to luxury. The idea of new luxury, has there been any kind of resistance in the way that you're writing about or um, featuring brands in, in a new, fresh way? Like how has the shift kind of been felt industry-wide as well as within, you know, one title? It's a really good question. I think the shift towards new luxury for British GQ, to me, first and foremost, represented the direction our biggest and longest-term partners were heading in anyway. Like I said, you could see it in the front rows, you could see it on the catwalks, you could see it in the campaigns, you could see it on the performance marketing that they were boosting most aggressively. That was the direction of travel. Um I, th- I thought very deeply about some other sectors um, who perhaps are more resistant to change and who have, whose like industry coverage is done in a tone that hasn't really evolved in a while. Um, and there were some tricky conversations. It's, it's like, if this is the way people speak about watches, doing something different is an active business risk, right? Um, you know, there were so many moments in my first year here where <laughs> like people pushed back internally and externally. British GQ was and is an absolute powerhouse. Um, and there were a contingent of people who were like, ooh, don't touch that. That'll break that. Don't change this. That won't work. People will leave. It won't work. And we had to be really, really clear And one of the most helpful things for me as an editor is data. Um, And so the first three months we spent poring over, not just seeing where UVs came from, where they went to, but also how long people were spending on stories, how likely someone was to come back and be a loyal reader after reading a particular type of story. Uh, We could see night and day, both tonally and in subject matter, 
what our readers were responding to. And um, we have spent a lot of time evolving our coverage and tone in a bunch of different areas from style to watches to cars to tech um, to culture, film and television, music. And um, in each case, we had a, a hypothesis. Um, we said, we'll be voice here, here, we'll add more reporting there, we'll shift up that format and we could prove it out to data, uh, prove it out with data. And... Um, you know, after six or 12 months, we could show crystal clear to PRs um, who were not quite used to this version of GQ, and they were a minority. To be clear, like, our biggest and longest-term partners were instantly got it. But for those partners, um, those brands we work with most closely who didn't immediately get it, within, like, 12 months, it could be like, look, people are spending three times longer on this kind of story, or people are much more loyal to that kind of story. This is working. Um, another thing I regularly say to my team is the greatest gift we can give to any advertiser, client, or partner is a highly engaged consumer. Sometimes um, there's a difference between what they might want or insist upon and what works best. And um, we take a lot of pride in holding that line and saying like, hey, look, we're the leaders here in editorial. We think we know this pretty damn well. Here's what the data shows us. We think this is best for everyone. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. So getting into that audience piece of it, I am curious, um, you mentioned like tracking page views and, you know, readership on articles. I'm also curious about audience on other platforms too, and how you've been, maybe like which platforms have experienced growth, where you've been kind of leaning in. I know video has been a very big part of not just Condé Nast, but like digital publication or digital media the past few years in general too. So I'm curious, like when you're looking at that data over the past couple of years and you're going back and seeing the successes, where have you seen growth and then use that to kind of prove that this transition has worked for you guys? You hit the nail on the head right away. Um, short and medium form video has exploded for us um, here at British GQ. It's something that we disproportionately invested in when I first came on board. Um, and we have an incredibly talented team here who don't just seek to like build out a runway of different types of franchises and IP and populate it. They're always trying to innovate. Um, that video growth has just been ginormous and it partners up with all the growth we've seen on TikTok. Um, I mean, I think last year we had more than 100 million TikTok views. Our Instagram engagement grew by more than 50% year on year. Essentially, with short and medium form video, the more money and resource and creativity we put into it, the more we get out of it. And it's really interesting tracking the revenue growth against that as well. Um, video is by far our fastest growing revenue line. Um, and all that work is like immediately paid off. It's really interesting looking at the flip side of what like what has changed and what has shrunk in the past few years. Um, we kind of had a, a big huddle about this time last year. And we're like, hmm, referral traffic from social networks is falling off a cliff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Let's think. Um, and uh, one thing we quickly agreed on is that publishers get themselves into a whole lot of trouble when you try to fight whatever paradigm the internet is on and go against the grain of consumer behavior, or algorithmic behavior. 
And I think you can see that from um, the brands that have been like uber dependent on social referral traffic over the years. And to be very clear, we were in that trap as British GQ in like 2017, you could post a 200 word style blog with a single Getty image and just say like, Brad Pitt, where's Bomber Jacket? And you could quite regularly pull down like 100,000 UVs. That era is over. And in this era, you can either like force links down the platform's throat and be accordingly throttled, or you can give people what they want, where they want it, and work to build a business around that. Um, and that's what we did really successfully, particularly last year. Our engagement is up 40, uh, 47, I think 47, either 45 or 47% year on year. We were the fastest growing um, brand in terms of engagement. It's across Condé Nast. And we were essentially rewarded whenever we went with the current and did so in a very sophisticated way. I think that's the big, one of the big stories from last year into this year is really understanding how to handle the changing platform algorithm and subsequently referrals. So is it very much focused on, I guess, like, Audiences are going to stay on the platform. It's going to be really hard to generate traffic to a dot-com. Let's just lean in and, and produce that content on social. Like, is that kind of the solution for the time being? Or are there other avenues to generating referral traffic that you found have worked um, as a replacement to some of the social referrals? I'm not sure anything will ever, like, replace where Facebook in particular was at. In that, mm-hmm. like, 2012 to 2019-ish era. Um, and for us, like, to be flat out clear, we don't want to be dependent on any third-party platform to generate enough page views or UVs to, you know, grow our digital business. It's just not healthy to be overly dependent on any single referral source. My way of looking at it is, like, how do you put the consumer first? I think if you do that editorially, you're typically rewarded, even if it's not the most direct path to what you think is your success. And I say that in 2024, it feels almost greedy to like shove five click-through links on an Instagram story um, and just force the user off the platform. It's like there's a pretty high chance that a bunch of the users want to get the gist of a story, see some great imagery and photography, and that might be all they want from GQ right then and there. Um, but by surrounding them with all these little sprinkles of content from like short form video to photography to the motion animation we build out our Instagram stories with, they're remaining in touch with who we are as a brand. And we also need to remember to not devalue the audience and engagement we've worked so hard to build on Instagram. Like I said, our, our um, engagement on that platform is up almost 50% year on year. And it's like, okay, how do we monetize that audience in a separate way? Um, and how can we spin that out as a business? Now, we're still going to put links um, to click through to should someone like fall in love with the story and want to read it. But I think the less greedy, less selfish, more consumer first thing to do is to say, they're here on this platform for a reason. Let's serve the hell out of them. And we can build our business around that as well. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's something that I've been hearing generally talked about in the kind of new approach to social storytelling from a variety of different um, publications I've spoken with. I'm curious then, like, when it comes to storytelling, either 
you know, adding more video into the mix or focusing on an audience who is maybe clicking through um, an Instagram story or, you know, finding a, I don't know. I personally watch Reels, so I'm going to say Reels, but I feel like TikTok is probably a little <laughs> bit more you. appropriate. I, I had to get- It's I, a safe space. I, I had to get rid of TikTok and I've said this a thousand times on this podcast, so apologies to the listeners, but like I- I was wait. I was wasting way too much of my time on TikTok. So mm-hmm. I'm a reels a reels gal now. Um, but I am Respect. curious. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. It, I mean, I waste too much time there too. So maybe I need was to the was the algorithm on TikTok too good? Yep, it was way yeah. too good, and it was starting so to get smart. it was starting to get too much into uh, product for me, and I was huh. Then going to Amazon way too much. So this is a uh, time-saving and money-saving decision that I've made. Um, and, and I do want to get into like the commerce piece of strategy as well. But I am curious, like with social storytelling in particular, has there been any kind of shift in the way that your reporters are approaching storytelling? Or is it really kind of like the social team's job at finding a piece of an interview or a piece of a story that's going to really resonate with the audience that's spending, you know, a couple seconds with you at any given time. Like, I'm curious how that approach to storytelling um, has changed as a result of this. I haven't been around that long, but I've been around long enough to remember working at magazines in an era in which um, print stories were given an overwhelming lion's share of time, money, resource, creativity. And the dregs went to web and then eventually dregs went to social and video. Um, but for many years, um, the the web launches of stories were like an afterthought. You'd upload the text, upload a hero image, and very oftentimes back in the day, use exactly the same headline that you used in print for the web. And you kind of wash your hands of it. And that was really for the web team to do. Um, and then whenever anyone did take a little bit of time to produce something in a really thoughtful, multimedia-driven way on the web, people like freaked out. I'm not sure if you recall, and I might butcher the name of this feature, but I think it was about 10, 12 years ago, the New York Times posted this really beautiful, deeply immersive multimedia story on a custom-built website. It was called Snowfall, I believe. Yes. And people lost their shit. It had like a, a motion video background behind the headline yes. and, and like these interactive maps and people like, holy shit, look at the product design. This is like bringing a magazine to life. Yeah. And then I think they came out and they were like, that cost us 50 grand. Um, but it was like an internet moment. And it was because someone finally had like, had enough respect for a digital audience to say, we're going to launch this with the same kind of attention to detail in pacing and design um, on the web as we would have in print. Um, and I just, I never forgot that moment. We all, I was in an office somewhere, we all lost our shit. It was like the coolest thing ever. Yeah, we talked so- about it in my journalism classes at the time. I remember going through, taking an entire class to go through this project and looking at the importance of digital media. Because even at the time in my journalism classes, digital journalism was not at all a focus or a even like um, like a concentration within the major. But yeah, I remember going through that and, and looking at Snowfall in that class. It's so funny. It was such a crazy moment. 
anyway, I never forgot that. And um, I also just, I mean, you have, I've, I've said this ad nauseum in the interview already, but I just, I don't want to ever rest on laurels or risk backpedaling into a, a paradigm that's like print first, everything else later, or um, just throw it on the website. And who cares? Instagram's never going to like drive that kind of traffic. So now we have story editors per story who from the outset of their story will partner with their peers on the visual team, um, on the design team, who also, in addition to designing the print magazine, do the like motion Instagram story reveals for our big features. And they work with the social team. And the arc of a story going from like reporting stage to closing for print to launching on social or sometimes skipping the print process altogether is much more drawn out now and much more thoughtful. Um, a big part of that is just like trying to rework the way we communicate with each other as a team and the way we collaborate and trying to do so without having too many meetings. But to cut a long story short, a story editor will now have responsibility for guiding a story through each stage of that process and have primary responsibility for building um, building out the idea with the design, visual, and social teams to make sure it launches in as beautiful a way as possible. Yeah, because I think for a lot of, maybe not like feature stories, but a lot of like celebrity interview pieces or, or things that are focused on like, um, you know, like a, I don't know, a cover star for lack of better terms, like the the launch on social or finding like a, a snippet that will resonate with a like social audience to generate that buzz has become so critical. Um, and oftentimes like the memification of, you know, whatever is said in an interview is so important too. But it is interesting having to like, think about introducing a story in such a fast medium to, you know, and it, like launching it in so many different ways in so many different moments, you know, down to like a, a quick story on Instagram or something like that is, is a fascinating change. And it's also interesting to hear about how the operations on the edit team itself has had to shift to stay on top of things like that. And so I, want to touch on within like social for a second too, how like commerce kind of fits in and the role of, you know, obviously monetizing an audience there through like advertising is important, but I am curious how you've been thinking about commerce and social as the platforms kind of shift their, you know, response to that revenue stream too. Are you finding success in being able to not just like generate interest, but then also like tracking it? Because I think the um, attribution piece has been a tricky point, but I am curious about how that kind of fits into your strategy for social audiences. Mm, I mean, one of the coolest success, uh, success stories at British GQ for the past few years has been GQ Recommends, which is our shopping and affiliates platform. Um, that team leverages the enormous trust and authority we've built over literal decades with consumers and then recommends products across a heap of categories every day, like fashion, watches, interiors, whatever. And it it's become a, a seven-figure business two years after it launched here. And it's scaling incredibly fast. It was up 20% last year. Um What's really cool about that is that 
rather than plugging in, like say we were doing a much more straightforward commerce player, not doing affiliates. Yeah, it would be kind of tricky to navigate the algorithmic challenges of being like product, 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 click to buy straight on Instagram. But by working really hard to build all this connective tissue between the GQ recommends team and the wider GQ edit team and social team, we can kind of use two things we're great at, which is like trust with our consumers plus really good storytelling to move product. Um, To give you an example, a couple of recent examples, I think, um, multiple items that we've written about that were worn by celebrities. One was a Chris Evans Percival polo. And just like, I think it was last week, Jacob Elordi wore an Ami sweater on a talk show. Both of those pieces sold out after being featured on GQ Recommends. And so by saying like, here's this epic style moment, let's wrap it in storytelling, let's give it a really cool social launch, let's show consumers where to buy it, we've had a heap of success. And I think that's a really interesting way to leverage two different powers that we have as a brand. Got it. I also want to touch on um, events as well, because I feel like that has become such a core focus amongst publishers of all kinds this year, um, last year too. But getting into that like community element of, you know, audience and creating these like very important moments too. How has events kind of fit into the fold or, you know, larger franchised moments too? Um, and how have they shifted as you've thought about this new luxury mentality and like the, you know, modern, um, media company in you know the past couple of years? I love this question. Um, it was one of the biggest questions I had to ask myself um, when I got to the UK. I think my girlfriend and I, three months after we arrived in London, were lucky enough um, to be invited to British GQ's Men of the Year Awards. And in the UK, when I say these things are an institution, it's an absolute institution. At that point, it had been running for 24 years. It was just in everyone's social calendar. It was like the first party back after the summer break. It was September. Um, and um, these awards were legendary and completely outsized in scale. And we went to the Tate Modern, it's black tie. It was a black tie gala awards dinner. And we sat down at a table, incredible company. There were maybe seven or 800 people there. And the scale just shocked me. It was like screens and staging that looked something akin to like the the BAFTAs or the Brits or any other comparable huge awards show in the UK. Um, There was MCs, there were category presenters, there were acceptance speeches. It was a really huge outscaled, such an impressive production. And um, I was like, wow, um, and walked away from that. And it was only after that experience that I actually got offered the, the British GQ role. And so one of the first tasks I had, one of the first questions I was asked is, what are you going to do with Men of the Year? And I was like, one thing I knew for sure is that if we really meant this new luxury thing, I don't think a 800-person black tie gala dinner award show thing really fit that mold. It's very impressive, but I don't think it fit. And my girlfriend and I um, were out to dinner with an 
actress that we know who had just come off like a year-long publicity tour for this huge studio film. So she'd been to every event around the world. And um, I was like, okay, what's the best party you went to? <laughs> I could use some help. I could use some inspiration. You went to every party. What was the best one? And she's like, oh, gosh. Uh, she's like, the Mechdala was so impressive. Like, wow, wow, wow. Um, she's like, my jaw was on the floor. And she goes, but the best the best room I walked into, I think I think it was the Vanity Fair Oscars party. I'm like, okay, cool, great answer, very cool, why? And she said, well, because you walk into this room and it's full of people that either you already know and love or people you're desperate to meet, and that was it. And further to that, it was so small and so private that it felt almost conspiratorial. It was a really, really special night. And then, like, that was my favorite party. I could not unhear this um, because the idea of, like, a gathering together of people in an environment that is, like, grand and beautiful and fashion-driven but not outsized felt really cool. The idea of, like, this kind of, yeah, like, this campfire gathering of really cool people who get to just enjoy themselves privately. It felt really, really modern to me. And I couldn't unhear it once she said it. And so in 2022, we made like a, a pretty radical decision to, number one, move the event from September to November to align with a new global schedule we wanted to have for men of the year. We cut the guest list from 800 odd people to about 220 people for the dinner. We got rid of the staging, we got rid of the awards, and instead we created what I would best describe as like a really incredible wedding reception dinner where like old friends and friends that have just made friends kind of get together, a few people stand up and give toasts and honor their mates and people have a laugh and then you have a really great party. Um, and that became the British GQ Men of the Year format. Um, in addition to that, Walking out of the Tate in 2021, I was like, that was bloody amazing. But I also thought there was a huge opportunity that wasn't being taken advantage of with content. I'm like, oh my God, this should be a social video home run and we should be capturing, these are some of the most famous people on the planet and they're dressed to the nines. We've got to be capturing this. The last thing I thought was that for a menswear magazine's biggest tent poliest moment it kind of felt odd at odds to do that as a black tie moment black tie is quite a restrictive dress code and it kind of encourages people to play things safe we're a fashion magazine so we changed the dress code we poured um so much money into social video and photography and we saw engagement go through the roof and i think when all was done and dusted from 2021 to 2022 when you combine video views web traffic, and social engagement, we were up more than 300x year on year um, in engagement, in views, in reads. Even last year, the video alone was up 250 times from 2021. And it's not because, like, you know, it's, this event has always been great. But what we did was kind of flip it on its head. Instead of having a kind of large-scale thing that's just for the people in the room and then not really beaming it out. We said, we're going to create a huge content moment by starting with intimacy. And by flipping that script, we much more deeply 
engage with consumers. Um, we created something that was also more talent friendly, which is really, really important to me. You want to create an environment that talent want to stick around in, not tokenistically or transactionally show up and leave. Um, and I think we architected something that really feels very, very modern. Um, wasn't easy. We had to take a lot of risks, but I couldn't imagine doing it any other way now. And um, we really feel like we've dialed into uh, a new format. Yeah. And I think it makes a lot of sense with what you were saying about making fashion and luxury a little bit more personal too, by having moments where you can have like either genuine interactions between people attending the event or creating content that, you know, makes it feel a little bit more, again, like personal so that viewers who are watching it at home or like on their phone or whatever, they see it and they still feel like, you know, they have a glimpse into what was going on there and that people were having a good time, I think really kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, goes back to, it goes a little bit back to that notion of like, this feels a bit conspiratorial or a bit like communal. Yeah. It's like we're in on something here. I'm not bullish on award shows. And I think that if you had the choice of watching someone from behind a lectern give a speech versus someone stood up at a dinner table with a gentle spotlight on them, I would absolutely watch the second one. It sounds like your audience absolutely does too, um, based on those numbers. Um, so to finish out this conversation, I want to bring it back to that, like how I opened it, talking about how Condé Nast has been taking this very global approach and how you've been thinking about your role as deputy editorial director for GQ globally, what that's really done in terms of connecting the through lines of either storytelling or taking these moments like British GQ Men of the Year, but expanding that beyond the confines of Britain, right? Like what has that allowed you to do either from a storytelling perspective, an audience perspective, or just like a overall collaboration perspective? Because I think it helps with the audience piece of it, but also with what you're saying around new luxury, like the idea that there are so many different, you know, cultural contributors to what luxury is today. Mm. It was such a huge moment for our company and also on a on a GQ level, obviously a ginormous moment of disruption and change. And I could not be any gladder or more confident that that decision was made for the right reasons. And it's led us to an incredible place. Um, the, the great big secret, which isn't a secret, is that people don't consume culture in neat geographical boundaries, um, especially not now. Even if you go back to 15-year-old me paying a premium to buy an imported edition of British GQ, I, I did that because I wanted a portal into a different place. I didn't want to see my backyard. And, um, you know, the past, like, four or five years, you, the, you see, like, moments like that huge squid game moment. And you just thought when everyone around the world was watching this, like, Korean drama at the same time, like, that could not have happened 15 years ago. And really interestingly, before we even went through our global transformation, 40% of our global traffic crossed international borders, as in 40% of Condé Nast traffic was coming outside from outside the country in which the content was created and posted. So consumers were actually ahead of us, um, as consumers always are. Um, and looking back on that big decision by the company, which I think was a very wise decision, 
the best part about this global model um, in which we work together so collaboratively and we've kind of um, really taken ownership of this big international superpower that we have by having all these talented people in different cities around the world. The best part about it is that we get to have it both ways as a brand. Um, and I can give you an example or two. In our old way of working, we were much more incentivized to compete against each other than our actual competition. I mean, like GQ editor versus GQ editor. And we were in ways both active and unintentional cannibalizing each other's work and hindering our potential as a global brand. Um, in 2020, so I, I was the editor of GQ Middle East. And um, you remember that James Bond film that just like would not stop getting pushed back because of COVID and the studio's like, yeah. no, no, should be okay in three more months. It should be okay in three more months. Uh, uh, uh. Because of that, but also predominantly because of our complete lack of communication and competitiveness, there was like a 12 or maybe 14 week window in which three different editions of GQ published three different covers with Rami Malek, who was playing the villain in that Bond film. I'm talking three completely different shoot days, three completely different hours long interviews, everything. Now, I know Rami a little bit, phenomenal guy. I don't think he wanted or needed to do that three times. Worse than that, like, none of us knew that the others were working on this Rami Malek story. What a colossal waste of, like, time and money and creativity. That is not, like, powerful local storytelling. That's us doing the same thing three slightly different ways. Um, and it just was not smart. And it was typical that, of course, smart GQ editors around the world were all chasing the same thing. They were chasing the big moment in culture. The big moment in culture coming up was James Bond. Um, we'd recently done a thing with Daniel Craig, almost to Rami Malek, of course. But it's a perfect example of the way that we were working in it. It wasn't locally. It was we were chasing the big global moments. And now in this new way of working where, you know, we're on a Zoom call every like Monday with all the editors from Taipei and Mexico City and Paris and Milan and New York. Like we're all together, we're in constant contact and we do these things together. So now when one of those big global moments happens, like say Rob Pattinson in a reboot of The Batman in March 2022, we get together, we of course secure it because we have an unbelievably strong brand with a really broad global network, very tantalizing for a cool talent. And we, we go out and get those stories still. And we do them once at an incredibly high level. And in that instance... It was a British photographer, an American profile writer, and it was a, a gangbuster hit. It was, in the UK, the best-selling print issue in three years. It did monster traffic globally. It was, to your point, memed and reposted ad nauseum on social media platforms. So we can get those moments and we do them together and we do them once. But the cool part about that is with all that time and money and creativity that you've saved by not competing against each other for the same thing, you can go and do something absolutely bizarro, wild, high impact in your local market with, with all that time, money, and creativity that you saved. So like three months after that Rob Pattinson cover, we at British GQ published a cover with the legend that is Rowan Atkinson, aka mm. Mr. Bean. Oh um, my God, and we did something yeah. that was like really off kilter, bizarro, amazing shoot, beautiful profile, kind of something that could only really be done here. 
and something that we went out and did. So we kind of get the best of both worlds in this global model. We acknowledge the fact and respect the data that shows that our consumers around the world are always searching for something new and are not infrequently agnostic about where it came from. These are open-minded people who are chasing culture and taste. Um, and um, what's really cool is that I think we overcame quite a lot of adversity and quite an operational logistical challenge to get to this point. Um, looking back, there was a lot of pearl clutching about, um, oh no, what's going to happen to to this local cultural moments? And, you know, this is homogenizing a great old menswear publication. I'm like, no, I think these publications are now in a better position than they've been in a long time. And more importantly, I think we're shaped in the way that a modern media brand ought to be shaped. Yeah. And so pre this change, 40% of audience was coming from outside of the country's borders. Now, after doing the global change, has that audience ratio shifted at all? Like, are you seeing generally more international readers or audiences coming in, you know, for British GQ in particular? That's a really good question. I don't know that stat off the top of my head, but maybe we can dig it out and you guys can like insert it in a robotic AI voice in my voice <laughs> right here. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining me on the podcast. It's been fascinating. I really, I really appreciate you taking the time. I had such a fun time and shout out to your Stanley Cup. Way to represent. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the one um, TikTok thing I, I definitely bought before deleting. That might have been the actual straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> Ruthlessly on trend. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. 